Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Kind of Detrimental Podcast. Uh, Dan, we had a little bit of a lapse there. Our first time, we had been a little bit slow. We both had uh, some busy times going on, but we're back today uh, to hit up a really timely topic, I think. And we're going to talk March Madness. So, Dan, how's it going? Uh, it's going well. I mean, it has been a long hiatus. I think it's been almost 10 days. We had Justin Falco on to talk about... Uh, uh, you know, ticketing legal issues, but now March Madness uh, has a, is, is upon us. In fact, I think the play-in game was on Wednesday night. It's it's already occurred, and uh, most people are filling out their NCAA tournament brackets. Uh, you know, this week, and uh, I think up until tomorrow early afternoon, they'll still be filling out those brackets. And uh, we're going to cover some of the legal issues uh, that that come up in in the context of uh, you know the March Madness pools. Are you breaking the law? What uh, what safeguards can you take to limit your legal risk? But before we start, uh, you know, it has been a, uh, you know, I guess as part of our basketball themed program, if you're in the New York area and you've been following the Knicks for, you know, years, uh, you can't help but be affected by uh, the, the terrible, tragic news of John Andre's uh, passing uh, a couple of days ago at age 78. If, if you're a Knicks fan of a certain vintage, certain age, I mean, he goes back all the way to the early 1970s. He was the radio analyst uh, for the Knicks' last championship season, 72-73. And, uh, I mean, he was he was sort of along for the ride during every up-and-down year alongside Mike Breen, Marv Albert. I mean, he was the classiest figure in, in my lifetime in New York basketball, always dapperly dressed, always funny on the air. And he and Marv had terrific chemistry, and that continued with uh, with Mike Breen. And just one of the all-time class acts in New York basketball. He's going to be sorely missed, you know, Johnny Hoops. So it's going to be difficult to uh, imagine the Knicks uh, on the air without him. I mean, he, he hasn't been doing the game since 2012, 2013, but he was a legend, and I don't think he'll ever be forgotten. Yeah, I'm not a big uh, Knicks fan. I've never lived in New York, so I'm not too familiar with his work. But I know he was an extraordinarily uh, respected figure in the Knicks sphere. So, uh, you know, condolences to his family uh, and the New York Knicks organization and the fans. Um, and with that, I think we can move along to March Madness. And I, I think the best way, Dan, to probably just to set the scene is to really talk about, you know, brackets on a larger scale and, and you know I saw some statistics earlier today specifically a few numbers from the American Gaming Association which put out some predictions for this year's uh, gambling numbers and they're pretty astonishing uh, the first one is that 10.4 billion with a B dollars will be bet in NCAA office pools this year on the games and that that they approximate that 70 million brackets will be filled out. And I think it's important to remember that, you know, the traditional bracket filling out an office pool, everyone throws in $5, uh, is, is like I said, the traditional way of doing it. But there's plenty of other ways. I was actually invited this year for the first time ever to an NCAA squares bracket where, you know, it's essentially the Super Bowl squares set up. And there's, you know, tons of different iterations of these uh, all the way, you know, back to probably traditional betting where you're just betting game to game uh, on each contest. Um, and so that number is going to reach, you know, I think this is the first time they've estimated it'll, it'll crack $10 billion, uh, in dollars gambled this year. 
And then it's, I think, important to also remember how much the NCAA is making off of March Madness this year. Uh, the television contract alone with CBS and Turner this year will pay the NCAA $761 million, which uh, their total revenue doesn't reach a billion dollars. So this is you know approximately three quarters of that. So it's a huge, huge part of the NCAA's pie. Uh, you know, just astonishing numbers. I think if you look at the total contract, which runs for, for quite a while now, I think maybe till 2030 or so, uh, but the contract will reach $900 million annually by 2020. So, you know, it's going to goes up every year. It's going to keep climbing and keep being a huge, huge revenue uh, stream for the NCAA. And then, uh, you know, along those lines, I think it's interesting to look at where the TV ratings have gone in recent years. Uh, we saw the top ever tourney rankings in 2015. And then last year was a little bit difficult to judge. So last year, the title game moved from CBS to TNT. Uh, it was on TNT, TBS, and True TV, I believe. And uh, the ratings were actually down 37%. But uh, it's hard to gauge how much that was due to moving from uh, a network to a cable channel. Uh, and also, last year, they had all-time streaming numbers which was a shock to nobody i think we're seeing a lot of that across the board when we're talking uh -huh. nfl numbers being down this year that really wasn't the case because people were just watching it a different way um and then also i think an interesting note that i saw to throw in there the women's tournament was actually up 46 percent last year so uh good to see some growth on that front um but let's get to the question of the day dan is yeah. your office pool legal uh, well, my office pool is non-existent. I, I must be at the only law firm in the country that does not have an NCAA March Madness bracket pool. I've worked at Becker and Polycop. I've been a partner there since, uh, I think, 2005. Five years prior to that, I, I was an associate. And I don't recall anyone ever inviting me. Maybe they just don't like me and I'm excluded <laughs> from these office pools. But the last time, as, as someone who uh, comments on sports gambling and, and sports betting, I haven't been in an NCAA bracket pool since the 1980s. I won the last one I was in. And to give you an idea of how long ago that was, uh, I, 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 I picked Georgetown to go all the way. And that was the 19, I believe it was the 1985 uh, men's you know, NCAA basketball tournament when, when the Hoyers were led by Patrick Ewing, Michael Graham, uh, God, Reggie Williams. I mean, these names are coming back to me. And I won my office pool or won my college pool, uh, which returned to me a grand total of about $120, well below the IRS reporting thresholds. But the answer of the day is uh, most bracket pools, almost every bracket pool where, that requires money to pay, money to enter, that returns a prize, that involves some level of chance or luck, Almost all of them are illegal. How many of them get prosecuted? Very, very few. None of us are going to be in any danger of going to jail or getting prosecuted under our, under our state, federal, and anti-state, anti anti-gambling laws. The ones at risk are usually the operators of the pool, but only when you get into the stratospheric numbers. Uh, there have been instances, in particular, there was one New Jersey gentleman 
who had a uh, multi-year, uh, going back to the 1970s, he had a pool uh, that had hundreds of thousands of dollars of entries. And it was conducted over the Internet, had many famous celebrities and announcers, um, public figures who partook in that pool. So the bottom line is uh, most of the pools are illegal, but almost none of them get prosecuted. And the way they come up as a possible criminal inquiry is when somebody reports it or it is or it becomes so large that it just comes across the radar of law enforcement law enforcement authorities and we're talking about a uh, big number of pools uh, conducted online and in particular where the operator or the administrator of the pool takes a cut and once you once you're taking a cut of the action you're acting as a bookmaker a pool seller you're definitely in the crosshairs of state anti-gambling laws so is this a state it's a state laws that were really potentially running a follow or we've seen the very very few instances where we've seen prosecution on this front i mean it, it seems to be more in the state laws rather than these overarching federal anti-gambling laws is that right uh, predominantly i mean there are three federal laws that can conceivably come into play maybe four uh you have the federal wire act of 1961 which prohibits, um, you know, accepting, uh, being in the business of accepting wagers in connection with sporting events uh, through the use of a wire communication facility. Well, what is a wire communication facility? We're talking about emails, faxes, and, and in particular, the Internet. So an office pool that involves just paper, people, you know, circling boxes, filling out their brackets and pen and handing it to a a person who collects the office pools, you're not going to have a wire act violation there. And uh, to the same point, the other one of the other principal federal anti-gambling laws that come in, that could come into play is UEJA, the Unlawful Internet Gambling Enforcement Act, and that predominantly targets uh, you, you know uh, you know banks and payment processors and those who collect money and process transactions conducted over the internet in connection with unlawful. Uh, gambling, but since we're talking about internet gambling, not uh, you know traditional paper brackets, UEGU uh, would likely not come into play. The third law, and people make a mistake about this all the time. You know, when we talk about sports betting, uh, everyone reflexively invokes PASPA, the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act, as somehow criminalizing. Uh, you know, NCAA bracket pools, that is just dead wrong. And it just annoys me whenever I read these articles, you know, uh, you know, every year it's a rite of passage. Uh, along with March Madness, we have our articles about why it's illegal to bet on March Madness, but you probably won't get prosecuted. Every one of those articles mentions PASPA. Let me clear up the misconception about PASPA. It is not a criminal statute. It is a federal civil statute that provides only injunctive relief. Uh, the greatest danger uh, that anyone would face uh, in, in participating in, in a bracket pool under PASPA is having Paul Clement and Aaron Murphy show up at your doorstep or send you a cease and desist letter. At most, it is only injunctive relief. And more importantly, it does not, it does not prohibit private actors from participating or operating bracket pools. The private actor aspect of PASPA only comes into play as a derivative violation only if there is an explicit state law or state compact that allows the activity. And I'm not aware of any uh, state legislative enactment, uh, with the exception of those uh, laws that permit friends and family and small pools, 
Uh, but, but aside from those one or two limited exceptions, the vast majority of states, other than Nevada, Delaware, Montana, and Oregon, who are grandfathered under PASPA, other than those four states and maybe one or two others, there are no state uh, legislative enactments that permit the activity. And in the absence of such an explicit state law, no private actor, no person, no business faces any vulnerability or legal risk under PASPA. It just simply does not apply. Yeah, and believe it or not, we have a Pennsylvania state senator, Lisa Boscala, who has proposed a bill uh, seeking to uh, legalize March Madness brackets. And I believe there's some very tight restrictions on that. It has to be you know, under $20 per bracket. All the money has to go to charity or the winner of the bracket. The operator can't take a cut. It can only be a certain size. So, you know, really trying to legalize it for the small timers, for the office pools, not for these huge rings that we've seen out there. Um, well, so- that, that that would basically cover no pool or no bracket pool that I'm aware of. I mean, you're talking about entry fees uh, under the $20 threshold. And I think some of the AGA numbers that have come out and some of the reports I've read uh, reveal that the average uh, entry fee of the average amount wagered in bracket pools is $29. So, so yeah. I think a bill like that, it's been introduced in the past. I think this is the latest iteration of the bill that has never quite crossed the finish line. Uh, I'm not sure that that would insulate or protect the vast majority of office pools in Pennsylvania, but it's a it, it's certainly a bill that uh, is logical, makes sense, and uh, just as we saw in the New Jersey sports betting case, one of the one of the examples uh, that that the sports league's attorney Paul Clement threw out as one that would pass muster under PASPA would be a friends and family type of situation, and uh, I'm I'm only aware of I think one state, maybe Ohio, that has uh, a legislative enactment like that. The vast majority of other states don't have a friends and family type exception, and, and, and the activity would fall under state anti-gambling laws. And uh, the question would be, uh, does it involve chance? Is there is there an entry fee for, for money? And is there a prize offered? And in the vast majority of situations in most states, um, NCAA uh, bracket pools would run afoul of state anti-gambling laws because you can't tell me that any participant that runs the table and wins their bracket pool uh, did so with the predominance of skill. Uh, you're talking about uh, you know, you know four, uh, multiple rounds, uh, n- so many knockout scenarios, and uh, in, in, in many states, the definition of what constitutes chance uh, can, can either be uh, a, a, a material amount of chance or even a slight modicum of chance. And then there are states like New York, New Jersey, Alabama, Washington State, Ohio, and maybe four or five others that criminalize uh, wagering or, or risking money on a future contingent event, irrespective of the amount of skill or chance involved. So, uh, you, you know, you can take any office pool over a minimal threshold and make an easy case that it violates state anti-gambling laws in almost every jurisdiction. There's just right. no question about it. That's, uh, you know, how could you, any, any lawyer give an opinion to the contrary? But, you know, the issue is enforceability and whether you get caught or whether it, it, it comes across the radar of law enforcement authorities. And in the few situations that have been subject to criminal prosecution, it's because the dollar amounts have been so vast it involves online gambling, and the promoter takes a cut of the action. So uh, if you're participating in a pool, there are probably five easy steps 
that would minimize your risk of criminal prosecution it would be one, uh, you know, conducted solely through paper and do not use emails, fax machines or conduct anything online. Number two, if you're the operator or promoter or administrator of the pool, do not repeat, do not take a percentage of the winnings or a percentage of the entry fees. Uh, you have to return all of the money. And if you don't, you could run the risk of, 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 in, of being uh, adjudicated or considered to be running uh, an illegal bookmaking or pool selling operation. Oh, and one other, one other, one other safeguard, uh, or two other safeguards. Uh, if you conduct it uh, like among friends, family, and in the social environment where everybody knows one another, uh, you probably will have a much or, or significantly reduced risk of, of running afoul of the law. It's when it when it cuts across and involves you know strangers, goes across state lines, and anybody can join. Uh, a pool or bracket pool like that stands a significantly heightened chance of a criminal prosecution. So no paper. Okay, so no internet, all paper, uh, friends and family, and more importantly, low dollar amounts. You want to keep it under the IRS reporting threshold, because certainly as the administrator or operator of the pool, if anyone wins in excess of, of $600, you have to issue a W9, I'm sorry, a 1099. And if anyone exceeds $1,200, I think, uh, you know, in the casino industry, they would have to issue a W2G form. So there are tax consequences, not only for the players, but for those who operate the pool. And of course, uh, all of the winnings, no matter what the threshold, are reportable as income uh, under you know federal income tax law. But of course, nobody reports anything. Yeah, and that's funny you bring that up. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, I have a bunch of stories where people have gotten caught and in trouble for this kind of business. But I want to throw in one extra best At practice work? after after Dan uh, took away all of our fun. Right there, these best practices. Uh, one other thing, I, you know, maybe maybe best practice, some of them, not all of them. The internet one is tough these days because almost all the brackets are run through various sites, although those sites don't actually collect money themselves, um, such as, you know, Yahoo, ESPN, et cetera. But one other thing that's out there, you know, in the last couple of years uh, has been reported as PayPal is actually catching on. So what will happen is people will set up accounts through Yahoo, and say, hey, PayPal me $20, $50, $100, whatever it may be for your entry this year. And people have been doing it, and, and PayPal has been catching on to you know suspicious amounts of money being sent to one person. Maybe the friend will put in the notes column, this has actually happened, March Madness Funds or something like that. Uh, and then they freeze the person's account, don't let them delete their account, I don't think people have gotten in trouble from that, but it's certainly a paper trail where if there was an issue, it, it, it seems like it would be just an easy, easy stop. And, and it, the, the the rationale for PayPal doing that is kind of fascinating to me because there must be somebody kind of breathing down their neck, whether that's their in-house lawyers who are cognizant of them potentially being part of this issue, or maybe, you know, state or federal authorities asking them to do so. Who knows? But... Well, um, it's a UEJ issue. Uh, you're talking about processing payments associated with 
uh, quote unquote, illegal gambling transactions. And it's also right. a, a violation in all likelihood of, uh, of PayPal's terms of service. Right. And it is. It's, it's both of those. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's given they've never been reported, at least to be part of the issue. It's just curious that they're they're uh, going after their own users like that. But anyway, I digress. Um, so Dan has given us a lot of the background, and uh, I have some stories about people who've gotten caught one way or the other that will, will kind of shine some light on some of those best practices, but also maybe undercut one or two of them. We'll see. Um, starting back in 1992, this is what I could find one of the first reported cases, uh, <laughs> two state of state of Rhode Island government employees. They worked, I think like in the department of energy in Rhode Island or something, uh, were arrested and charged with a felony and misdemeanor for running an office pool that had 41 entries, excuse me, 24 entries with 41 people mixed in there somehow and had only collected $210. That's basically the whole state, right? I mean, it's a small <laughs> state. I mean, I, I think that must have covered, uh, you know, almost half of the entire state of Rhode right. Island. So hard to keep a secret in a small state yeah. like that. And, and it's funny you mention that because the only reason that, you know, they were caught is because someone tattled on them and told the police. And the police had quotes on the newspaper, in the newspaper article after and said, hey, listen, we had a job to do. Someone reported it. So we went. It was illegal. And we arrested them. Um, so that one is the rare, very, very, very rare exception of a small time peanuts work pool actually being caught and note that only the folks that were actually running the pool were caught there, not the people participating. Um, and then, you know, there's been some bigger ones as well, right? So an owner of a Staten Island bar who ran a $1.5 million pool that had 150,000 entries in it uh, had eventually was caught because the winner one year, the honest winner one year reported his winnings to the IRS. The IRS caught wind of it and what? took the whole thing down and, and it, they didn't take him down for gambling. They took the owner down for tax evasion because he was taking a cut of the pool. I believe this uh, when he's taking a cut of the pool each year for running it and then not reporting his cut. So he, uh, pled guilty to three counts of felony tax evasion, avoided avoided jail time miraculously, but did get two years probation and had to pay restitution. Um, well, he did. He ran the pool for 30 consecutive years. Uh, I mean, it was bound to come across the radar. I mean, you're talking about a small Staten Island bar that ran the same pool for 30 plus years, uh, had prizes, I believe, in excess of a million dollars, and he didn't pay taxes on it. I mean, that's that, that's not a pool or an office pool issue so much as it is a tax issue. Exactly. I'm, I'm just, you know, providing a little insight into how people get busted here. But it, the, the funny part about that was there, that bar no longer runs the pool, but a bar down the street does now. And it was, like, specifically named in this article, and they're clearly – a pretty high level of disregard for for uh, trying to deny running the pool and everything, and it's I don't think it's up to the one point five million dollar <clears throat> excuse me level yet, but uh, interesting that they are pretty oblivious to the applicable laws. Um, interesting, uh, you know, little anecdote about that bar. It's named Danny's. Uh, do you have an ownership interest in uh, Danny's Bar in Staten Island, Dan? I don't, but since it's exactly. Danny's, maybe both of us should get in on it together. Um, yeah, and when you get into Staten Island 
and you're running an office pool like that for 30 plus years. A lot of police officers live in Staten Island and, uh, um, you know, it's difficult, uh, very difficult to keep something like that under the radar. You know, most of these office pools are sort of, you know, one, you know, in and out, you know, you, you conduct the pool, uh, and it, it, it's limited in time and it's, and it's over. And from year to year, maybe different people operate it. There's no continuity. And it's it's really critical if you're going to operate any kind of a gambling operation like that among friends and family or or, or coworkers, something like an NCAA bracket pool. It needs to be basically a one off and maybe in future years, different people operate the pool. But the common thread among all the uh, pool situations where um, they run into uh, you know criminal difficulties, the common thread among almost all of those pools is the operator taking the cut of the proceeds that that is more more in the nature of a of bookmaking and pool selling so if you're going to be doing a pool and you want to limit your risk uh to close to zero percent which it which it's probably near it anyway but if you really want to err on the side of err on the side of caution and safety uh the operator just simply cannot take a cut yeah, I think that's usually usually how it works, and usually why they don't care. But uh, it, so, get, moving on to our next our next story of someone being caught, we have uh, this was actually 2015, so recent. Uh, there was this, the details of this one are a little hazy; they never really came out. But it was uh, an interesting note because there was 23 people arrested at one time in Alpharetta, Georgia, and they found "quote unquote" a large gambling operation in progress based on an NCAA tournament. Uh, so this wasn't, you know, an office pool. This one reeked of huge dollar amounts, although it wasn't said. There was a, a, a large volume of, of cash recovered, uh, also a lot of guns. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> this, you know, was a little different <clears throat> of a of a ring than, than we may be used to in uh, the a, law firm. Yeah, isn't, a Warren Z, isn't a Warren Zevon song, Lawyers, Guns, and Money? I mean, uh, maybe that inspired Warren to write that song. But again, you're talking about right. a, uh, a full-scale or, 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 or true gambling operation. Yeah. And the vast majority of um, basketball fans who participate in office pools are, are doing it under the radar uh, just through their office and with, uh, you know, colleagues, friends, or family. So, you know, it's the ones that uh, go above and beyond that that run the greatest risk of criminal prosecution. And, and again, uh, the federal anti-gambling laws in particular uh, and, and many of the state laws target the operators, not the players. Uh, under federal law, the Wire Act does not apply to individual bettors, only to those engaged of the, in the business of, of accepting wagers or bets on sporting events. And same way, UEJA. Uh, is not utilized or invoked against individual bettors. And, of course, as I mentioned earlier, PASPA has zero applicability despite what all these articles are saying. It's not a criminal statute. So the the, the risk for the individual pool participants under criminal laws would fall fall almost exclusively under state law, not federal law, although that's not much of a – consolation because if you violate the state anti-gambling laws you're probably in, you're probably going to pay a fine and uh you know have to disgorge your winnings but federal law wouldn't come into play against individual individual betters at all yeah 
And our, our last story is my favorite. Um, has nothing to well has something to do with betting pools. Um, but former University of Washington football coach Rick Neuheisel, you might remember that name. He's been around. He <laughs> went into his NCAA betting pool, won $12,000, and was promptly fired from his head coaching position uh, for winning the pool. That was the, that was the rationale for firing him from his football coach position because it was uh, against NCAA guidelines at the time and currently, I believe – um, and he later actually sued the school and, and the NCAA. The case went to trial on the eve of the, you know, when the jury was sequestered, um, considering apparently there was, you know, quotes that the trial hadn't gone well for Washington and NCAA for a variety of reasons, some of which had nothing to do with the merits of the case. NCAA had apparently uh, not met its discovery obligations and it did just the trial just went poorly. But in any event, Right before the jury came back, Washington and NCAA settled with New Heisel for four point five million dollars. Um, so he won the pool for twelve thousand, and then he won his lawsuit for four point five million. So it wasn't all in all a bad loss for New Heisel, um, but that's just one. Uh, you know, if you're a college coach out there listening to the podcast, I'm sure we have many of those. Uh, don't take part in your NCAA pool. Yeah, I mean, that applies to the, the, the players themselves. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, five University of Richmond, uh, you know, football players, I think, no, baseball players, uh, you know, were, weren't they suspended for playing fantasy sports, not even involving their own games? Yep. So, NCAA guidelines daily strictly, strictly prohibit. Well, I mean, bracket pools aren't daily fantasy, but it go, kind of goes to the, you know, point of participating in, uh, you know, sports gambling. I mean, that's verboten under not only NFL policy and NCAA bylaws. And, uh, you, you know, I, I think it would probably not be a good idea for any NCAA uh, D1 coach or player to participate in any kind of gambling pool, whether we're talking about March Madness, fantasy sports, or, or sports betting. Yeah, you'd have to wonder. I mean, there's got to be a pretty good percentage of NCAA athletes that participate in some form of fantasy sports. Um, so you got to kind of feel for those five players who were, were the guinea pigs of being suspended for it uh, well, without too smart, much if, fair warning. If they're smart, Dan, you know, they'll use proxies. I mean, you know, if, if, you know, it, it's just the height of stupidity if you're a, a collegiate athlete under NCAA bylaws to register for FanDuel, DraftKings, or any other site under your own name if you're going to play and you want to play for fun or even a little bit of money or a lot of money, uh, just sort of go through a proxy and you, you'll, you'll evade detection. I disagree that it's the height of stupidity. I think that's for many college-age students. And, uh, you know, back in the day when I was in college, I probably would have made a similar mistake. I can't put it past myself. But, uh, you know, considering that wasn't really a wide, widely known issue, um, I, I, f I have trouble blaming the athletes. But um, in any event, that was not that was an interesting, interesting decision. We'll have to see how yeah. that, you know, impacts things moving forward. And discussing moving forward, uh, you know, one one interesting aspect of this that, that I want to talk with, with you about, Dan, and uh, we know that the Supreme Court is considering the Christie 2 case. There may be uh, an imminent change in the legality of sports betting coming down the line in, in the, in the not-too-distant future here. Let's just envision a scenario where sports betting is legal. Like, what 
does March Madness look like when sports betting is legal? $10 billion becomes $30 billion real quick. Uh, the handle that is associated, I mean, no one can audit these figures. They're just estimates. But the vast majority of that $10 million is attributable to office pools with an average you know, wager of $29 or you know, $25 per, per entrant. Uh, you you, you all, reallocate that to actual single game wagering and even you know, in play in game wagering, it becomes a Nevada type situation. I mean, I don't know anybody, or I, I, don't know, I, I know very few people who are able to, who do wager on NCAA basketball games. Most go to Las Vegas. A few people I know have bookies. If you, if you legalize and regulate the entire environment, uh, the, the brackets become a very small percentage of the overall wagering activity. And, and, and since the brackets constitute close to the $10 billion that the AGA reports as the you know, annual amount bet during the, you know, and, and during March madness, I would, I would be willing to bet if you had a bet, if I would be willing to, to go as far as to say that if you had legal sports gambling in all 50 States, that $10 billion wouldn't just grow incrementally. It would, it would double, triple, quadruple. You're talking about a significant amount of money that could flow through the system and uh, not only be reportable as taxes to the IRS, uh, but, but would be paid. Uh, there'd be, be gaining revenues paid to individual states. Uh, to the rights holders like the NCAA, uh, and I would envision a scenario where where the betting uh, environment for NCAA men's basketball games would just go through the roof if you legalized it. Because right now, uh, I mean, the, the, the you know the only game in town pretty much outside of the state of Nevada are bracket pools, and that and those are small scale wagers on average. If you allow um, full on single game wagering on these games uh, it doesn't just become one wager on, on on one bracket you're talking about 64 teams but you know 52 games in the first round 16 games in the second round and so forth up up through and including uh the ncaa men's basketball finals the number of betting events compared to one bracket pool would, would would grow by leaps and bounds, and consequently, the handle associated with legal single game wagering on NCAA games would grow. Uh, you know, in, you know, many times over. So the overall handle, in in my view, would have to grow by several multiples, and that's just an insane amount of money to leave uh, off the table, given the current legal environment in which we're operating. Absolutely. I think just, you know, the novelty of it the first time around, it would be wild because I think, you know, we would have <clears throat> these various apps set up that, are, you know, currently exist in, in Nevada already, uh, you know, that would allow game to game betting, would allow in game betting where you could make bets on almost play to play between timeouts as the lines change. Uh, it would increase significantly. And, you know, Having been in, in, I'm in multiple of these pools every year, uh, and you know, tracking the camaraderie of that, you know, a family one, let's say, or a work one, or whatever it may be, you know, there's a lot of smack talk, and I, I think just to raise the stakes and do it uh, would be really interesting. I, I can already imagine some groups of friends that would be all over that. Uh, you know, I think just to think of the, the practical side of it, if you look at a site like Yahoo, who runs, uh, you know, free brackets, 
where I have some registered already, you know, in theory, they could either take the money themselves and then pay it out or have a third party come in and do that. You know, I think just the way that you would sign up would be different. You know, there's the potential. We were talking about this before. And you mentioned that there's the potential for the for a, like a state run lottery, right, where you could submit a bracket to the state where it would just be a massive payout, um, something like that. Um uh, is there anything along those lines, just sort of practically speaking, else that you had thought of? Well, I mean, the state lottery idea or concept is one that's currently prohibited under passport because it would be state-sanctioned you know, sports gambling. But you remove the impediment that passport poses, uh, the NCAA uh, tournament would, would prevent, um, you know, just uh, a, a wide you know, array of possibilities for state governments and state lotteries to get in on the action. I mean, we're talking about, you know, if the Super Bowl is the single biggest event, um, you know, sporting event in the country every year. I think the NCAA men's D1 basketball tournament is the single most, uh, you know, bettable uh, event because it, it cuts. It, it, it's not limited to three or four hours. It is a multi-week event with bettable opportunities, many days per week, multiple games per day and uh an avenue like that for a state lottery would just would just be uh you know a phenomenal number and and and, and i know state lotteries like especially in massachusetts as uh, you know there, there are several states that have talked about utilizing the state lottery uh uh to facilitate fantasy sports play i mean the numbers for fantasy sports in any kind of state lottery setup would be a would be just a fraction of the kind of numbers that would be driven by the NCAA men's basketball tournament, particularly in states that don't have a significant professional sports presence in states like Mississippi or Alabama that do not have any major professional uh, sports leagues or franchises. In states like that, uh, a, a state-based lottery centered around the NCAA tournament would be uh, it would just would, would, would be a tremendous uh, number, and you're talking about multiple revenue streams. You know, casinos, racetracks, the lotteries, state governments. The ten billion, as I said earlier, the ten billion dollar number could easily grow uh, twofold, threefold, fourfold if the entire uh, environment were legalized, regulated, and permitted. And it's a missed opportunity, uh, given that the activity is taking place anyway, and, and uh, the vast majority of the money is being driven to illegal channels, uh, you know, offshore books, illegal you know, bracket pools, and, and that presents a tremendous economic opportunity for, for, for the stakeholders, for the states, uh, and, and federal income tax reporting. And it's an anachronistic law that uh, really does... Uh, inhibit or, or prevent so much of this money from being uh, reallocated legal channels. Yeah, it's a, you know we've been there, we've been down that road before, uh, but it's going to happen. Yeah. It's going to happen. It's I mean, happen. Sooner, yeah, they keep saying you know, sooner or later it's inevitable. Three to five years, five to ten years. Uh, I went on record at South by Southwest this Saturday, and it's pretty obvious if anyone who's following the United States Supreme Court. Uh, case involving Christie II, uh, uh, the, the court issued a invitation to the Solicitor General to submit an amicus curiae brief expressing views of the federal government on PASPA. Well, that brief will likely be filed uh, by the, by the uh, U.S. Solicitor General, the newly appointed uh, SG, still has to be confirmed, but Noel Francisco in all likelihood will be filing that brief in May. 
And given the audio, the, the audiological uh, you know, background of, of Mr. Francisco, he's a, uh, an active member of the Federalist Society, and that's, an, that's a conservative law organization uh, that advocates uh, limited interference, limited federal interference in state, internal state affairs, and and believes in broad state rights. And uh, the Christie case could provide the perfect vehicle to advance the kind of federalism principles that lawyers like Mr. Francisco have historically supported uh, during their careers. And I'm of the view, and of course, you know, I'm, I, I don't know, I, you know, I, this is just a prediction, but I get the sense that uh, the SG is going to recommend that the court grant certiorari. And, and that recommendation, whichever way it goes, either a cert grant or cert denial, that's followed by the Supreme Court historically 80% of the time, and over the past year and a half, the last 25 of these um, invitations that have been made to the Solicitor General that have been responded to with the Nikas brief, the court has followed it 100% of the time. So we could be working our way uh, towards the Supreme Court hearing the uh, constitutionality of PASPA on its merits later this year, and if that happens... Uh, you know, quote unquote, all bets are off. We could have legal, or we could have PASPA stricken as unconstitutional uh, as early as next year. And that could open the floodgates for states to legalize sports betting. I mean, parlay bet here. You know, the SG has to uh, file an amicus brief recommending a cert grant. The court has to grant cert, which it will if he recommends it. And then the court has to overturn PASPA. So it is a uh, kind of a, 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 a free event parlay that has to take place. But I think there's at least a, uh, a it is at least a 50 percent chance, if not significantly higher, that those three events will happen. So what you're telling us is we have 2018 March Madness will look a lot different than this year. And that would be uh, an, an interesting, interesting result. But I don't want to drown on about this stuff too much. We have another podcast completely on the issue. So if you guys are interested, jump on that. Um, Dan, do you have well, a team well, well, you're cheering for? Well, well, I want to get to the timing of this. Uh, let's say best case scenario, the court grants certiorari uh, and then issues a decision in January, February, March of, of next year declaring PASPA to be unconstitutional. Uh, that doesn't solve that, that does not insulate March Madness bracket pool. What it does is it then removes the sole or primary federal impediment to state sanctioned sports gambling, and then states would have to introduce bills uh, and enact them into law to legalize sports betting within their borders. And that's a process that would you know take a couple of months and would vary wildly widely from state to state so i think we're looking even if all those uh, even if all those you know conditions proceed and a good legal term occur i think we're looking at the 2019 march madness is the earliest uh date at which we would have um full-on legal sports betting in the vast majority of states, although some states could pass laws very quick next year. Certainly in New Jersey, uh, you would have one right off the bat. Delaware and Pennsylvania would probably follow suit. And then there are uh, six, eight other states that have enacted or introduced bills that are what I would call on-deck bills uh, that, that are triggered if they're passed in law would, would tie the uh, effectiveness of sports betting in those states uh, to the removal or repeal or, or 
you know, uh, uh, you know, jettisoning jettisoning of PASPA under uh, the Supreme Court precedent. So as many as eight to ten states uh, could have legal sports betting in time for next year's March Madness. The Supreme Court declares PASPA to be unconstitutional. Do I have a favorite team? Yeah, um, Hofstra, St. John's. Uh, none, neither of which have seen a whiff of the NCAA men's basketball tournament in a long time. Uh, I don't have a, a strong rooting interest this year other than, uh, you know, uh, I probably want to see the Big East win. Uh, but no, I don't have a particular team. Maybe Darren Ravel's team, or, or more accurately, Ju- Julia Louis-Dreyfus' team, uh, Northwestern. That would probably be the team I want to root for. Northwestern pulled... Vanderbilt, my local squad here in Nashville, uh, for the the Nerd Bowl in the opening round. <laughs> um, but Dan, you're welcome to jump on the uh, University of Michigan bandwagon with me, um, as the Wolverines just miraculously, after a team plane crash, they had to play in their practice jerseys the first round and miraculously won the Big Ten tournament. We're hot. We got screwed with a seven seed, but uh, I think. It has a chance for some fireworks in attorney. So jump on the Wolverine bandwagon. Well, if Jim Harbaugh wants to come over to my house and recruit me, uh, I'm all in for Michigan. Be careful. Um, he uh, might he might uh, do a sleepover. He's done that one before. So, all right, Dan. I don't, well, have, I don't, I don't have bunk beds, so uh, <laughs> that prospect is out. Uh, probably, uh, I think UCLA might be another team that I'm going to watch closely because as a Knicks fan, uh, what's the rite of passage for the Knicks? Uh, basically to watch somebody else participate in the lottery because you've traded away your number one draft pick. This is the rare year where the Knicks have held on to their number one draft pick, and they will be in the lottery because they are all but certain to miss the playoffs. And I'm kind of interested and intrigued by Lonzo Ball. Uh, the fantastic point guard from UCLA, who's got a little bit of Jason Kidd in him, his dad. Don't think the um, Knicks are going to be bad enough to get him. Is the only problem. As hard as that may be to fathom, uh, we may need we may need another frozen envelope. Oh, they don't do envelopes anymore. They do ping pong balls. You know the rumor back right, in 1985, right, right. the you know the the lottery is fixed so that the Knicks can win uh, the rights to to get Patrick Ewing. There was the the rumor or the, the urban legend of a frozen envelope. But there's so many great players that are going to land in the lottery this year that even if they don't get Lonzo Ball, uh, there are a number of players up through the first six, seven, eight picks of they're likely to fall in. The Knicks are, I think, the sixth or seventh worst team currently. So they're going to get a great player, but I think Lonzo Ball would be a transformative player for them. Pair him with Porzingis. Uh, you know, his and, dad could uh, beat Michael Jordan too. So you you, you get a package <laughs> deal. Uh, he I might get. Think he, he can still he it up. A, he, he might be able to procure a one billion dollar shoe contract if his son uh, gets drafted by there the Knicks. Go. There you go. So, All right, yeah, Dan. Well, we're past our time, so I don't want to keep you any longer, but. Uh, I'll look out for UCLA as well. He's a fun player. So, um, good luck to everyone in their March Madness pools. And I hope this was a helpful review of whether or not you're going to end up in jail. You're not. Oh, wait, 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 wait a second. We need a disclaimer. Uh, the foregoing shall not constitute legal advice.